legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Niall Murphy of Through an Opaque Lens. He and I discuss mainstream and alternative media, polarization in public debate, propaganda surrounding COVID-19, the global elite's plans for the planet, reasons to be optimistic about the future, and much, much more. Hello and welcome, Niall. Thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yeah, all right, Greg. It's been a while um, coming together, hasn't it, I suppose? So uh, we got there in the end. Yeah, I think it was, we're speaking now in June 2021. I think it was August 2020 that we were in touch. I remember I was on holiday around my birthday and I remember watching one of your videos in a B&B um, as I was about, uh, just before I went out for my birthday dinner. So <laughs> that's why it sticks in my mind. So it has certainly been quite a while. We're going to, we're just having a free form chat today, you and I. Um, but for people who are just coming to this cold and they, they don't know who you are or what you've done or what you do, just give us a potted bio and a little bit of, you know, relevant info about your work. Oh, right. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, say my name's uh, Niall and I go through, uh, my, my kind of, I don't know if it's a semi nickname, opaque lens, but it's, uh, my, I call my YouTube, uh, channel through an opaque lens and, um, I mean, I'm kind of, uh, I don't know how to describe it really. I kind of think of myself as someone who's from another planet, kind of like Doctor Who or Ford Prefect, right? Who, um, you know, who uses his left brain as a secondary instrument to try to understand the world because he's, he's wired up the wrong way. Uh, probably because I'm left-handed too, right? And, um, and my, my, uh, my approach, like when I'm, I'm making videos or whenever I'm, um, commenting on things, my approach to everything is that I usually come from a, a non-ideological stance. And that means that I've got this kind of aversion to, you know, being conforming to normal society. But likewise, I've also got the same aversion to, you know, joining any conformity of a second or third order. Any, any alternative orthodoxy is still an orthodoxy, you know. And so when I commentate or when I comment on anything, my whole approach to it is to have a unique, detached, um, somewhat neutral, um, reasonably non-ideological, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, fifth column, third place perspective, I suppose, on anything that I talk about. Um, I, I think that, you know, if we, if we all had nuanced, complex, nuanced, pluralist ways of looking at the world, it wouldn't be in such a mess that it's in at the moment. That's kind of my approach to everything. Now, you mentioned you're through an opaque lens as a channel on YouTube, but, um, you're obviously on other platforms as well now because there have been some, how shall we say, issues with YouTube. I came, I discovered your work via Thomas Sheridan. He's mm. a regular radio guest of mine. And I can't remember exactly how it happened, but it's something he must have reposted something. I, I just can't remember, but that's how I discovered 
what you were doing, and I, and I enjoyed your um, I enjoy your sort of you know quirky individual style. It's, it's very much you know this is me, isn't it? Mm. Uh, when you're pre- so a lot of people in alternative media, I, I don't particularly like that term, but we have, have to consider ourselves part of that, I suppose, because we're presenting yeah. ideas and information that you won't find if you turn on the TV. Um, mm. But some people will will take their personality out of it or never enter into it in the first place. And they're presenting ideas and information and concept and maybe guests and whatever sort of media they have. And they are literally a voice or a talking head. And mm. you're a good example of someone who really lets their personality come through. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's very, very much, this is what you're getting. It's not, mm. it's not you in a suit and tie dryly presenting information. You know, people do get yeah. an insight, I think, into, your character in the way that you present, uh, you know, the topics that interest you. Yeah. Well, this is the, uh, the thing. I think that there isn't enough of that these days, but there's often too much, uh, extreme. I mean, back in the old days, I think, you know, in the seventies and the eighties and the pre-internet era, you had a lot of really strong characters and very much, you know, strikingly individual, unique people. And these days you've only got like, um, you, you have a lot of extremes, don't you? You have a lot of people who are very kind of dry talking heads, not much personality, very bland and beige. And then at the other hand, at the other side of the spectrum, you've got a lot of people who are almost like narcissist, cult leaderish, you know, hubris filled, overbearing. And there isn't really that much sort of in the middle anymore. We're in a time of extremes with um, where the middle used to be. There's a chasm. So I always think that yeah, that if you know, my, by by doing what I'm doing, I suppose I'm trying to get people who. To, to encourage, I suppose, people to have um, faith in their own uniqueness and their personality and their confidence in themselves, because I think that's very important. I think the more people are like this, the more this is encouraged, the more we preserve the what I think of as the, the individualist society as opposed to a collectivist society that we fear that we could fall into. It looks like we could fall into now if we're not careful. Yeah, you're right about um, decades gone by. You had more yeah. forceful characters in the mainstream media, and even if they were just a mainstream or, you know, primetime news anchor, you really mm. felt the force of, of their personality in the presentation, and it would colour the show. So even yeah. if it wasn't that person's, you know, if it wasn't Jeremy Paxman just having, you know, like, for example, when he was on Newsnight, and I'm not being pro or anti-Paxman, I'm just saying that when he was on Newsnight, which is the era when I did watch, you know, BBC, yeah. you felt the weight of Paxman's personality and his opinions it, it came through you know he wasn't just like a stuffed suit and mm. he's just a name that's popped into my head there were many other characters like this in the 70s mm. and 80s yeah it's true i'll write down to uh, i remember J- jeremy paxman's spitting image puppet who is kind of like who was even more like jeremy paxman than jeremy paxman was so to speak but yeah i mean that's a good example but it was like um i don't know i mean the concern that I have at the moment is that because there's a kind of a lack of this, there's a lot of what you call, there's there's the me, me, me narcissists at one end, and there's a very bland people who look like they're just kind of, I don't know, like like uh, Joe 90 puppets with, who, who are talking. You've got that extreme of what's going on at the moment. And as a result, it kind of um, seems like in order for uh, people to be taken seriously as people who are giving out information, they have to... Um, they they feel that they have to sacrifice who they really are for fear that if you like that if they um, allow too much of their personality in um everyone's going to think of them as being a, a narcissist or or this or that and um i think that 
you know, because we find ourselves in this age of woke at the moment, we find this, ourselves in this time of uh, identity politics, um, a lot of people out there are probably cowed because they fear that they're going to be very harshly judged by everyone. It's just becoming a really nasty school playground these days compared to how it used to be, I suppose. There's a there's an odd uh, hybrid of some of the things you've described. I can't remember her name now. Maybe my description of her, it will, you can help me out remembering but she's this woman bbc presenter she does she'll do you'll see her on the street reporting from location you'll see her in the studio interviewing people and so she's part of this you know the epitome of the mainstream controlled media certainly here in the uk the bbc um but she just loves herself and you know she's the sort of person you can imagine i don't know but that if she walked into a wine bar or restaurant in London after, you know, her day at the BBC that she'd be looking around to see who was checking her out because, oh my, it's her, you know, like like anybody actually cares what she says. And I, I, say, I just can't remember her name, but I can see her face now. She's sort of got like a bob-style haircut and it's and she writes columns as well. But anyway, she, she kind of symbolises kind of the worst of both worlds. So someone whose personality enters into her work, but not in a good way, and yet she's still channeling this this mainstream filtered information so you know it's kind of again it's a weird hybrid worst of both worlds yeah it's not emily Maitlis, is it um no uh, as soon as you uh, say the name i'd remember but um all oh, right i don't really watch enough of bbc to even know who that would be these days i i i can't stand it i mean every time i see it these days i don't recognize it now you know um everyone on it looks like they're chosen for uh, woke affirmative action or whatever um, and nothing about it seems real um, likewise you know the personalities of these media types seems to be becoming more and more uh, what was I say infantile all the time but I do see I mean one of the things that I have noticed recently um, that I that actually does make me hopeful is uh, since their GB News started up um, I don't know if you were aware of GB News um, it's only just started up recently uh, Andrew Neil who used to work for the BBC is uh, is running it himself and there's a few uh, heavyweights uh, basically all the all the people who were cancelled by the woke took their revenge and have set up um, the BBC or like the British equivalent to the counter narrative to the homogenous woke media that we have here in this country and for me this is um this combined with talk radio is a good thing because it's um it seems to be the mainstream now is developing a counter narrative and one of the things i've i've been a critic of you probably might have noticed um if you've been watching my videos is um i'm very much a critic of um the mainstream becoming monolithic and everything else being in the alternative i i think the best way that we can go forward even if it's heresy to suggest this, because um, people are in fringes, if you like, very far out in fringes, is that we need to have a mainstream counter-narrative to the mainstream itself, and it has to exist within the mainstream, and it has to be uh, quite balanced. So seeing, um, you know, GB News and then over the last few, ra- uh, over the last few um, uh, years, talk radio coming on, taking the uh, opposite view from the normal, loony, lefty, woke, remainer, sort of perspective if you like i think it's been uh is a good thing but i'd be interested in what your opinion on that is well um, to be honest with you couldn't really have put it better because i mean you don't have to agree uh, with everything that any news channel is presenting or any you know any sort of media but having the diversity and having different shades 
of opinion, I think, is really important. It's when it all starts to sound like you see all the networks presenting the same, you know, regurgitating the same press releases, you know, from political offices and from corporate offices without any interpretation, any color, any deviation whatsoever. There's a, there's a rather well done and instructive YouTube video um, that went around a while ago and it featured all of the main news networks in the US, including regional ones, not just the, the national ones. And oh, yeah. it cut back and forth between all the presenters all over the US and they were covering whatever story it was. And it showed how they were all saying exactly the same thing, even when some of them were in, you know, blue states, others were in red states. So they were all, they'd all taken this one piece of information, all presenting it. So you could surf as many channels as you wanted. You'd get one interpretation of reality. Yeah. Yeah, it was really weird. It was almost like a, there was one bit where they got loads of them and put them together, if I'm not mistaken, and it sounded like a whole choir of them speaking the same news. Yeah, yeah, they, they, they started out with one presenter in the corner of the screen, then they added more and more, yeah. uh, or like singing harmonies, all just yeah. exactly the same thing. And I, I don't uh, consume a lot of what I would call news media. Mm. Um, I think if events happening you know, locally, nationally, internationally, globally, whatever, if they're important to you, they, they, the information finds its way to you somehow. If you need to know, you will find out. Mm. And I don't agree with everything, all the people who appear on talk radio, just to use one of the examples you give, but that's yeah. not the point. But, you know, they have, I defend, as they say, you know, their, their freedom to speak. Um, yeah. It absolutely. I mean, they were. Did you recall recently when they were briefly deplatformed by YouTube? They had their YouTube channel taken down. But of yeah. course, talk radio were owned by quite a big mainstream media organization, ironically enough. And it was only when they, they, they kicked off and threatened legal action that YouTube said, oh, okay, you know, mea culpa, there's your channel back. Yeah, no, I, I noticed this. I mean, I thought it was bang out of order when, um, you know, YouTube um, decided to do that. But um, and also like not just talk radio, but up until um recently last year, when uh, Donald Trump was still president, the fact that um you know all the big tech companies got together and silenced him, it doesn't matter that it's Donald Trump. The fact is they all got together and they all compiled, you know, with malice aforethought, so to speak, to silence the person who held the office of the leader of the free world, um like uh. Like we, have, you know, they basically announced to us that we now we are now in a uh, big tech technocracy um, totalitarian setup, and um, you know uh, there was definitely would have been some kickback. I think they know that was an own goal, so to speak. And well, basically, when talk radio was um, was pulled, they weren't having any of it. Um, you know, all right, Rupert Murdoch might not be our favourite person, but uh, he owns uh, the company that talk radio runs on. So um, you know, he. Uh, so exactly they couldn't really get away with doing that but um they have been pushing and um there has been kickback and the kickback is now happening from um other parts of the establishment this is one thing that i spoke about in a video i've literally just put up uh, before i spoke to you uh, is that i've noticed now that theresa may is taking the opposite stance on the lockdown um and speaking out critically against it than what boris johnson is doing speaking about how this can't go on forever during the same week, the G7 is happening, and they are not following any of the rules themselves. And whenever they do appear to be following the rules, they seem to be blatantly, flagrantly looking like they're looking to see if the cameras are watching them while they're doing it. Um, they've become very complacent 
And I was thinking about uh, how this reminds me of Animal Farm in, uh, in a George Orwell's Animal Farm, more so than either 1984 or Brave New World. How the, the, the good thing about Animal Farm is that as you, as you go through, you see how the goalposts are moved very subtly, very slowly. And it's all very pernicious and very insidious. And uh, it takes advantage of people's um, lack of uh, long-term memory as they go from being equal to being some more equal than others um, to saying that humans are bad because they walk on four legs to the pigs eventually walking on two legs, right? That sort of thing. And um, and I'm kind of noticing now I'm seeing cracks. And one thing I'm kind of hoping for is that we're going to have a split within the elites and within the establishment classes. You know, we think Andrew Lloyd Webber, Lord Lloyd Webber, is going to go against the rules and he says he's going to open up his theatres on the 21st of June and arrest me if you don't like it, he says. He's announced. We've got this um, schism happening within the establishment classes right now. Well, I mean, I think yeah. Lloyd Webber probably should be arrested for his crimes against music, but on the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on, the, on, the on the issue of opening his theatres, then I, I would be with him on that. So, but we know we'll see what happens on that front. But it was it was interesting looking at the G seven situation, wasn't it? Because it was so mm. it felt like those photographs of the G seven leaders, the formal photographs for the media, which were of them physically distanced. I, I resist using the word socially distanced because there's nothing social about it. But physically distanced, wearing masks. But then it seemed to be that the the photographs of them all patting each other on the back, shaking hands, having a cocktail party, that those were all too readily available, you know, because normally there's a there's a, a thick veil of secrecy around what goes on behind closed doors in those events. And this seemed to be very much, well, these photographs seem to have been just almost made available somehow, like your, yeah. your nose is being rubbed into it. And the one I saw in particular, which was doing the rounds, was the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, Queen of England, well and truly in the vulnerable category, hobnobbing, at a cocktail party with lots of other international leaders who'd flown in just recently from all around the world. And yeah. yet it's like, you know, there's nothing, nothing to see here. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 they couldn't be more complacent if they tried. Now, I mean, I'm, um, the more I've kind of gone through time, the more I, I don't take the paranoid stance that everything is a deliberately calculated conspiracy. Cause to be honest, I'm, I don't think that the world leaders are that bright. I, th I think we overestimate them if we think they're that bright. I think ultimately power corrupts and um, they get to a certain point where complacency kicks in and laziness kicks in um, as a result. And they think, oh, we're so powerful now. We can do what the hell we like. You know, screw the masses, screw what they think. But I think um, what's going to be their downfall is the fact that the, um, the revolt will not just come from the, the masses or the plebs, so to speak. The result, the revolt will come from other people within the establishment. You know, other people who are like backbench MPs, lords, distinguished people, ex-judges, people like that. And um, that's where I think that a lot of the backlash will come from, as well as coming from um, you know up, um, upcoming new um, counter woke mainstream media too. I see um, a shift in this, if you like, um, a shift from one thing to another, and a possible sea change coming along soon as a result maybe i'm just being naively optimistic when i say that but um when i look at how hysterical a lot of the you know the more paranoid conspiracy theorists are online i think well you know they're the sort of people that even if things were getting better they would think that was a conspiracy too 
But I, I do think that they are just being dumb and complacent, and history has shown that this has always happened. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. That that the the blanket view that you know everything's a conspiracy and that um, you know there's, there's a, this global network is completely united and moving in the same direction. It can appear that way sometimes. But yeah, I don't buy the you know that sort of David Icke type view. I, you're right. I just don't think a lot of those people are that smart. I think there's some genius level people hmm. in globalist organisations. I think there's a mixture of people who's what they want to you know, their their preferred direction for the development of humanity and the planet. I think it ranges from incredibly nefarious through mm. to probably quite altruistic actually but that's the whole point it's you know it's it's a it's a mixed it's a it's a it's not a black and white situation and mm. more than more than ever and you see this in the across the media now and every topic of contention and everything that people debate and argue about these days and the situation we find ourselves in with the pan- pandemic everything is presented as black and white, it, it harks back to George Bush, the idiot boy junior after 9-11. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists, you know, and now you're either, you're either a COVID denier or you're a, you know, a, you're, a, you embrace the narrative completely unchallenged. You're either, um, a, a pro-vaccine fundamentalist or you're an anti-vaccine fundamentalist. You use the word nuance close to the top of the R. And that's a mm. word I had, had in mind myself. And that, that's what I try to bring to yeah. the media work that, that I do, you know, just the different possibilities and look at things from different angles. So this, mm. you know, demonization of others who don't share your opinion and everything has to be taken to ex- one extreme or another is very, very damaging, very unconstructive, very unhelpful. And it simply leads to more and more polarization and division. Mm, yeah. Well, this is the, I'm glad you brought the vaccine up actually, because this is one of the things I um, was uh, thinking about. I had a bit of a big decision to make. Um, I've mentioned on my show a few times that, um, I have uh, one of those international relationships and I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to meet her in a third country at the moment because, um, well, I can't go there because they're closed to tourists. She can't come here because it's, it's a developing country and she'd have to jump through a lot of hoops but there is one country that has been open to tourists all along and the whole plan is to try to get us to both uh congregate there but the only problem is this this specific third country um has had a very high covid rate and because it doesn't have an economy or probably or a medical system anywhere near up to the scratch that we have i don't want to go there get ill and you know put the natives out of uh you know out of luck by taking up their spaces um so i thought also um, she's going to be dependent on me. Uh, I have to put myself in a responsible situation. I looked at the evidence. So far, from what I can see, the vaccine has, um, you know, since it's come out, um, the deaths and the hospitalizations have just gone off a cliff. So that's evidence as far as I'm concerned. I don't know about long-term stuff. I think that's all in the realm of speculation. I just chose to get the first vaccine, and I'm going to get the second one before I go, purely because I think that... You know, at least for where I'm coming, it seems like it'd be a wise choice to make. But when I announced it or mentioned it on my channel, I think I got the most amount of dislikes and um, a few passive-aggressive or argumentative people I even had to block on social media um, because I realised that this whole thing about my body, my choice, goes both ways. 
my body, my choice means you must be anti-vaccine um, because we, the alternative media, say so. Um, <laughs> and uh, my approach to it is, no, my body, my choice means I take the vaccine, but I speak out against um, people's human rights being taken away in the name of vaccine passports because I respect people who don't take it. And, um, you know, uh, my, my ideological stance on it is still neutral. I agree. Yeah. Quite, quite right. Yeah. My view on this is the same. And again, we're not here to actually talk about this. A lot of people will be quite jaded with this issue now, even yeah. though it is currently raging at its peak. A lot of people are, oh, please don't talk about COVID and vaccines. But I'll simply say that yeah. my approach to this is the same as any other medication, whether it's medication, individual purchase of medication and going to a doctor to get a prescription or any kind of medication program, you know, which involves medicating substantial numbers of people for a particular reason. Mm-hmm. It should absolutely be down to uh, choice and people should go with what they feel, whatever the reasons happen to be. That's, you know, my body, my choice. And you say it works both ways. And I, mm. I respect other people's choices. That Again, to hark back to what I said about all the, you know, every debate and every contentious subject being presented in a black and white manner. Mm. We simply have this thing now where there's a lot of people who are a bit wary about the vaccine for whatever their personal reasons are. Um, and they're feeling real rooted into it. Mm. And uh, there's a lot of people who have embraced the vaccine, taken it at the first available opportunity, seeing it as, you know, as it's been kind of advertised as a way out of this. And they are, uh, you know, contemptuous and really hostile towards anybody who's cautious about it. And that that's never happened before. You know, we've had pandemics and, and epidemics uh, mm. many times. Uh, around the world and there's you know you just have to look up the history of them you, there they are there have been mass vaccination programs for various reasons but it's yeah. never been like presented like this it's never played out like this in terms of division and conflict yeah i mean it seems that that's the real um if i was going to say there's any real conspiracy that's going on at the moment is um um i'm looking at this situation and thinking now that if uh how are they playing us off against each other? How are they creating these um, ideological stances? What are they getting us to fight over? What are they preoccupying us with things that they think we should fight over? Anything that involved in that is a distraction or a misdirection. We should be looking somewhere else. And the thing we really should be concerned about, no one's talking about. That's how I usually see it. So I see the vaccine as being one of these hot potatoes of conflict and contention that everyone's fighting over. The, the social engineering suggests to me that the vaccine is probably not the real issue here because they don't want us fighting over what the real issue is. If there is a real issue, if there is a grand conspiracy, that's kind of how I think about conspiracies myself. Well, yeah, I mean, there's always the, the, the media in general and so many elements of popular culture, they function, whether it's intended that way or not, they function really as a huge distraction uh, from what I would say are the important things in life, you know, it, <clears throat> thinking about it from a, a philosophical and metaphysical perspective, but also just from day-to-day terms, just saying like, don't look here, look over there. You know, yeah. it, it's like the, it's like a stage magician, isn't it? You know, sleight of hand. Um, yeah. the stage mag- magician is waving something in the air or something sparkly or whatever, something on fire. And all the audience are looking at that. Meanwhile, the other hand, is doing something else uh, that doesn't want the audience to be aware of. So I think that's how that often functions. And you can you can see that in the history of propaganda, you know, how it served to not only 
push particular ideas and um, program populations into certain ways of thinking, but also to distract from something else that would otherwise be causing a great deal of um, consternation. You know, people would be very concerned about you know issue X, but issue Y has been inflated out of all proportions. So that's what people are you know getting their knickers in a twist about. Yeah, it really does seem like that at the moment. I mean, there's a mass gaslighting going on. If, if anything is happening, it's that right now. And um, I don't know. It would be it'd be funny if it wasn't so scary. That's the thing. Um, sometimes I'm I'm actually going through Twitter feeds and I'm seeing some really crazy woke stuff on there, and I'm I'm wondering because sometimes I'm looking at it and thinking, oh, this is satire, but people haven't understood it. <laughs> and then at other times I'm looking at it and thinking. Oh, this probably should be satire, but the person um, who's making it don't realise that they're they're an accidental comedian, and it's just hard to know what's real and what isn't real at the moment. Um, but we've got a lot of people out there who are unfortunately very gullible and they're falling for all of, of this stuff. And um, you know, my 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 take on it, and I mean, well, how can I say? Because you're 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 from Northern Ireland yourself, aren't you? Yeah. So um, I wanted to use the Northern Ireland as a good example because you growing up in Northern Ireland would know a thing or two about sectarianism, would know a thing or two about kind of like a red corner and a blue corner and getting caught on one side or the other. The old joke about a Buddhist being in Northern Ireland and someone coming up and saying, "Are you a, are you a Protestant or a Catholic?" And he said, "No, I'm a Buddhist." And he said, "Are you a Protestant Buddhist or a, or a Catholic Buddhist?" Because they can only think in one or the other way. And I suppose that because I'm uh, English-born, both my parents come from south of the border, I've got this very inverted view of Northern Ireland to the one that you would have, insofar as I don't think I'd fit there anyway, because my name would make me one half of enemies, my accent would make me the other half of the enemies. And um, when it was on the news, when I was a kid, when it was on the news, my parents were going to start the Republic of Ireland um, every year. I'd come back to England. I'd I'd see it on the news. The kids at school would give me stick because I had a very Irish name, and it decoded the simple um, propagandic way of looking at it, you know. And I've never been able to be sectarian um, as a result of that, um, you know. In, in, in that, despite my Irish connection, I am pretty much the polar opposite of someone from Northern Ireland in that sense. That reflecting on the, the situation in Northern Ireland historically. You can really see parallels between that and the situation where we are today and the black and white uh, milieu that, that we've been discussing. I grew up in an area that was not greatly uh, bothered by the troubles. I'm pleased to say it. We know there wasn't yeah. much in the way of sectarian strife in, in our everyday lives. Yeah. You know, I, I heard a few bombs go off and, you know, I was heard about a few shootings and whatnot, but the, the main nexus of trouble was elsewhere. Point is, I remember people saying, whether it was just their opinion or whether they were relating anecdotes or stories, that whether you were stopped uh, by a street gang in a particular area of a city in Northern Ireland or a town, yeah. and they asked you, which side are you on? What colour are you? You know, are you a prod or a Catholic before deciding how to deal with you? Or whether you were staring down the barrel of a gun and somebody's asking you the same question. To say something like, I'm neither, wasn't acceptable. Yeah, You know, it's like you're either going to get hurt or you're going to walk away from this. Give us the right answer. You couldn't say you were, you know, not that it occurred to anyone to say they were Buddhist necessarily, you know, but <laughs> if you tried to say something genuinely nuanced, not say, oh, I'm Jewish or I'm Muslim, but saying something like, look, my heritage is what it is, but I don't 
buy into this conflict. I want us to live together in peace. I, I have got friends on both sides and I don't have enemies. That sounds reasonable, but it would have been treated as unacceptable because it's oh, like, yeah. no, we, we need a categorical answer out of you. Well, they would be seen as the worst type of all, you know, the, like the worst type of uh, person in the Northern Ireland would have been a moderate. Uh, I remember um, a, a sketch, well, actually, it was part of political broadcast, but it was done by John Cleese. I don't know if you remember that in the 80s, where he uh, he was uh, taking a piss out of um, people on the Labour side and on the Tory side. And he said that, you know, you've got, you've got the people on the left and they hate um, bankers and they hate capitalists and, uh, you know, and they hate this group and that group. And in the end, he, they said they also hate moderates, right? And then you've got this people on the other side and they hate, they hate, um, donkey jacket wearing sort of like, uh, socialists and they hate punks and weirdos. And again, he said they also hate moderates. And, um, so yeah, the moderate to be a moderate in a, a time of polarization is to be the worst heretic of all. Uh, well, you see, moderate has, in some people's minds, there's a whiff of kind of mediocrity about it, a whiff of uh, yeah. too much compromise, a whiff of sitting on the fence. Mm. And I don't actually particularly like the word moderate because, you know, I, I don't like, I, I like to, to sensations, you know, in life. Like I like really hot curries and I like really cold days. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I don't like, I don't, yeah. I don't like a mild curry and I don't like a sort of drizzly day where it's about 10 degrees. You know, I want to actually experience mm. something, but that, that's just a word. Moderate is just a word. And it can definitely be used as a pejorative. You're right. You say, oh, this yeah. guy's a moderate. Basically, he doesn't know what he thinks or he's hedge- yeah. hedging his bets or he or, you know, he or she is hedging their bets. Yeah. I prefer the word nuance that we both used because it's more like, well, take each, each issue on its merits. You know, mm. I'm not going to say this is why I could never join a political party, because if I signed up to the Conservative Party in the UK, for example, and looked mm. at a manifesto, I could comb through it and find all these things that I didn't think were a good idea. If yeah. I signed up to the Labour Party, I could comb through the manifesto and find a load of things I didn't think were a good idea. And that yeah. doesn't mean that you sit on the fence and you don't decide on anything. It just means that life is a little bit more subtle and a little bit more fluid and a little less uh, simplistic and black and white than is often portrayed. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's true. And, um, I don't know, this need for simplicity at the moment, this need for, tr- to create a lower resolution model, so to speak, than what is actually going on. It seems a bit strange to me. Um, because, I mean, well, say 10 or 20 years ago, it feels like we're in a very different world from the one that we were in 10 or 20 years ago. And there's this thing that I kind of consider to be a flippening. Um, I don't know if you ever saw that early video that I did where I, where I said that um, it's a good idea to fuse the ideas of Jordan Peterson and Robert Anton Wilson. Of course, that got me stick from Jordan Peterson's fans and Robert Anton Wilson fans, as you can imagine, because they um, they they don't like the idea of you mixing anything, you know. But I thought, um, zooming out and looking at the whole thing in a really big picture kind of way, I saw that Robert Anton Wilson came from a very staid, very dull, mediocrity, very ordered post-war world with lots of uh, grey men and um, he was part of a, he was like a chaos meister that came along and um, was basically trying to be an antidote to order because there needed to be an antidote to order at that time and then he had this counterculture which kind of led to 
everything from rock and roll to psychedelia to punk to the rave thing that happened in the late 20th century, which is a great time to grow up in, I think. Um, but then, of course, it kind of went a bit stale. It became directionless and became nihilistic right in time uh, for Jordan Peterson to come along and be an antidote to chaos, doing exactly the same thing the uh, the other way around. And um, and I think, uh, uh, yeah, I've, I'm one of these people who has been able to surf um, or flip, if you like, quite comfortably from one thing to another without actually changing my identity of who I think I am in the process. But I have seen a flippening, and... Um, it's, I think it's incomprehensible to a lot of people. And um, I, I just wonder, I'm, not, I'm probably not um, explaining this as clearly as I'd ideally like to, but uh, I'm hoping that you kind of grasp what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to mention Jordan Peterson, one of the things about him, I know you weren't really discussing his you know, perspective or whatever uh, per se, but mm. I've been listening to, I subscribed to his YouTube channel recently, and he's got a wealth of very interesting interviews. He's, he's himself has become a, you know, a podcast host, as it were. I've never read any of his books, but I know obviously the main thrust of what he's, of what he's pushing. My, in reading criticism of him and praise as well, and just generally moving around, uh, that whole milieu, it seems to me that the main objection to him, you know, a lot of people calling him pseudo-intellectual and reactionary and all the rest of it, is that he, when he's at his best, he's speaking what was commonly known as common sense. Mm. And a lot of people have cr- actually criticised him on that basis, saying, oh, well, he's just talking common sense. You know, it's like the emperor's new clothes. He's, you know, what's he selling? He's just regurgitating what what we know to be true, what is self-evident. Well, no, because a lot of people who push back against him resist that idea and they say no this is not that which has been taken as self-evident throughout human history no longer applies and ideas do have a shelf life in many cases not all concepts not all values are eternal but sometimes when i've listened to him either just you know giving a presentation or talking or speaking with one of his guests i say yes you know that's common sense it's self-evident it's something that seems immutable and eternal, uh, but he doesn't, he doesn't always get it right. So for me, a lot of the resistance is basically that what people don't want to hear, which is that which is common sense and self-evident. There's now this uh, movement towards subverting pretty much everything, including that which, which cannot be subverted, but certainly some people will die trying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does seem to be uh, a bit like this. And also, I mean, you know, the, the, the efforts that people will do, the kind of mental gymnastics that people will, will try to apply when they're trying to cancel people or trying to discredit them. Um, in that, so far, from what I could tell back in the days, you know, when Jordan Peterson came out and he said that he didn't approve of Canada's C-16 bill that was going through, which where the government would compel you to what pronouns you could use. And if you misgendered someone, um, you could get in trouble, um, you could get fined, and if you didn't pay the fine, fine you would be put in prison. Uh, and this is what he said. They said, well, yeah, you're not going to go in prison, you're only going to get fined if you call Z or Z, he or him or she or her, and they don't like it and they get offended. And then he said, yeah, but what if I don't pay the fine? So he pointing out that, yeah, it will be secondarily or tertiarily a criminal offence, a crime that could put you in prison if you uh, don't recognise it. 
and he said that in all the history of English common law, um, there had never been compelled speech. They made him out to be transphobic as a result of him saying that, and then they moved it a step further and made him out to be, well, as they like to say, literally Hitler. <laughs> so, so he ends up um, having all those social justice warriors banging on the on the outside when he's doing lectures and stuff like that for a little while. And um, this sort of level of uh, hysteria, I mean, this is even pre-COVID as well, which is uh, quite strange because it's like, you know, COVID comes along, lockdown madness comes along and adds to this as well and amplifies it. The cancel culture, which once was just the domain of uh, social justice warriors in academia, has now made it into HR departments in corporations and has now even made it into legislators. It's happened very, very quickly. And um, they've completely failed to make Jordan Peterson out to be the Nazi that we've been told um, that he's supposed to be. But they haven't given up. They've just double, treble, quadruple down. But um, despite the fact that, yeah, like you say, not, not everything, I don't agree with him on everything. Um, that's not really the issue for me. The issue is that he seems to be a man of integrity who speaks the truth as best he can. And he seems to be a decent bloke. Um, and he's very, I think, very brave to be taking the stance that he is at the moment, especially considering all the health problems that he's had recently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. And you yeah. don't have to agree. What you said is, again, encapsulates this predicament we yeah. find ourselves in. It's like, which side yeah. are you on? You don't yeah. have to, you know, wholly or support anybody's views because they're, by definition, they, you know, they're individuals mm. and, and they have a range of views across it and they will, you will agree with them on some things and disagree on others. It, I don't know why people find that strange in public figures or, or you know, uh, or media you know, for example, that you and I, I mean, I, I don't know you personally. You know, this is the first time we've spoken, but we're not going to agree on everything. But so if that's not contentious, if people think that Niall and Greg don't have to agree on everything, why, why not that? Why does that not apply to other people who just happen to have a, a high public profile? And you talked about the, the law, you know, that Canadian law that Peterson was uh, very uncomfortable with. There, there are many cases, again, there's, there's kind of what I call natural law ironically, some of which are summed up in the Ten Commandments that seem evident about, you know, thou shalt not kill um, mm. in self-defense. But there's good reasons for a lot of the things that you or I and uh, many people listening would consider to be obvious. You know, they go, well, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. And people go, well, yeah, we know. You know, we mm. learned that from our parents or we have an innate understanding of that. When you get into the realms of things that need to have to have a legal framework built around them you know that, yeah. that that people will people will naturally go most people will naturally go in a certain direction but you then need a legal scaffolding put around something in order to put it in, in the opposite direction then you, i think you've got an issue that you need to look at there is it why is it that our innate instincts in this area which you know most people could say yeah okay of course yeah common sense why do we have to have introduced laws in order to subvert that? And, you know, I think that indicates that you've got a problem. And as far as the, the, the woke agenda goes, um, I've got something quite significant to say about that in terms of like world events. But for now, I would simply say that uh, taking offense is a choice. And I really, really resent this idea that people should be defended or shielded from feeling offended 
by by you know by a legal framework and enforceable in law. I, I read a great piece recently by one of my former radio guests, Stephen Booner, and he was writing about the biosphere. This sounds like I'm going off on a complete tangent now. Bear with me. Yeah. Oh, no, that's all right. I like tangents. Sometimes you get good <laughs> gems out of them. Yeah. <laughs> he was writing about something that I've written about, actually, and it was the Biosphere and Biosphere 2 projects. And these were Earth-based projects, but designed to uh, begin to test situations that if we ever did manage to build a moon base or a base on Mars, how humans might begin to establish life there. So it was like a completely hermetically sealed environment. They were built in the desert somewhere in the US. Uh, some people, uh, scientists would, would be, go in there and they would live in there for months or years on end, completely sealed from the outside uh, environment. And they would grow food and do all the things that they would need to survive as if they were on the moon. Mm. I'll cut to the, the chase. The trees that grew up in the biosphere grew very quickly and very large, but they, they withered and died very quickly. The reason being is there was no wind inside these, uh-huh. no wind inside these artificial domes. All oh, right. And it was the wind in the natural environment that caused the trees to grow strong. So you see what I'm getting at here? It was the pushback. Yeah. It was the forces pushing from outside that caused trees to grow strong. The fibers of the woods develop a resistance. And this idea of protecting people from ideas they don't like and hermetically sealing them leaves them weak because you don't grow, you know, you don't build up that resistance, that strength. Like you and I went to school. If we didn't have fights in the playground, then we had other kids calling us names, saying things to us that we didn't like. We got exposed to ideas we didn't like and people we didn't like. And all of it added to an inner strength that allows you to grow and mature and exist in an environment that is not inherently safe. I see now in the COVID era, the this resistance to ideas that people don't like and the idea that they should be protected from being offended is now reflected in the safetyism, a mm. word that I used in, in my recent video, my safetyism uh, in the pandemic, you know, that everything must be about safety and yeah. pr- protecting people from any, that doesn't build strength whether it's from your immune system or through to your intellect or your emotion your psyche all of it is weakened by trying to hermetically seal it away and from outside influences yeah no i I see this and um, i'm wondering how it came to this i mean i suppose when you uh, look at um like uh long-term history the the whole history of us you know um what i like to call the longer now perspective because human beings only think in terms of five years or 10 years or 100 years or whatever but um i've actually been trying to um experiment with the idea of thinking of myself as being like a quarter of a million years old or three million years old or um and then trying to imagine that um yeah um the monkey that i was before i was human what brought us to be where we are now and um it seems that like we've been living in really harsh conditions for a very long time people forget that um medical science is but but a few seconds old in in that sort of glacial um or geological like um timelines you know um consumerism if you like uh, wealth technology we're living in this really strange world because very sudden very suddenly we find ourselves in a world with prosperity consumerism and the sort of level of technology that is well beyond 
the kind of scientific futurism that we were all predictively programmed within the 70s, if you like. We really have gone into that strange future. The only thing that we haven't got is space travel and teleportation. But we've gone into this very strange future, and what's it done for us? It's made us very weak. It's made us so weak we're now finding ourselves in a society where people are scared of ideas. But you only have to go back a few hundred years, the early times of the Industrial Revolution. Um, the first machines that come along were literally so unsafe they were pulling people's arms off or, you know, getting people's hair cut, um, caught up in it and pulling their heads off and stuff like that. That's how bad it was in those days. And then, of course, you go back before you had um, industrial stuff the average age that people lived was probably what between the age of 27 to 40 um and this is only within the last few hundred years but yeah our civilization is 10 to 15,000 years old um and then our species is a quarter of a million years old and then we were living in caves and then before the first cave paintings when our human brains were smaller than what we are now when we were just slightly above the rest of the animals some very strange monkey um, that species goes back tens if not hundreds of millions of years and the only thing that brought us to where we are evolved us where we are now is um, ideas that were not necessarily good ones that we have to be constantly exposed to and um, things that make us help us develop anti-fragility and now we're trying to stop all of that within the last decade that seems to be what we're doing we're trying to stop um the wrong ideas, and we're even trying to curb anti-fragility. Yeah, so where we find ourselves now, you know, the second year of the pandemic, 2021, yeah. I agree. I think we find ourselves intellectually, psychologically weakened mm. and yeah. getting weaker, and we're in danger of increasing our our physiological weakness, actually. because You know, you could go back to, let's trace, say, from the post-war, post-Second World War era, the rise of, you know, when we still had rationing and what have you. Just just think of what happened to societies, all the prosperity since then, uh, mm. all the physical luxuries, the labour-saving devices, yeah. the um, abundance of food, the advent of junk food, the advent of television, mass entertainment, and all these machines doing work for us, uh, how sedentary that we've become, how inactive so you know all like you know nations of couch potatoes so we've become physically degenerated over decades and i say i only see that as potentially increasing now whether it's from people not exercising you know not able to go out and go about their normal daily lives because of pandemic restrictions uh sitting at home binging on netflix and you know ordering takeaways and, and if it, it's all about a lack of physical activity and you know mm -hmm. no matter what you think about the circumstances we find ourselves in and, and the origin of that the, the facts on the ground are that you know people not moving around much and indulging themselves in lieu of whatever else they would have been doing and that's just exacerbating trends that were already in place and my concern about the mass medication culture that we're now in is that that will further Thinking back to your, you know, echoing of, of hunter-gatherer and paleolithic times and, and how we were attuned to the earth and, and designed to evolve with the environment and, and how diseases that came along oh. would make us stronger, ultimately would make the species stronger, that we're now undermining all of those natural 
systems and all that natural resistance. Yeah, it's uh, it's true, and I'm a bit concerned about that. I, I went out a couple of days ago. Um, I had to uh, pop to uh, Exeter. So the first time I've been in a city for a while. And, um, you know, I, I was looking around, and the first thing I noticed was um, the I was just shocked by the amount of obesity I saw there, you know. Um, I mean, I know there's always been a bit of obesity around, but I was actually shocked because it, it, the, the amount, the percentage of it that I saw, you know. You could see there was the odd person who looked really fit looking. Um, they'd made good use of the lockdown and they had um, been to the gym and all of that. But the majority of people, I mean, it must have been at least one in every two person I saw. It's not just that, they, you know, how can I say? I mean, I'm, I'm slightly overweight and have a spare tyre and I've been, you know, how can I say, wrestling with that for a while. Um, I did lose some weight. But being obese, being that, that shape, you know, being that, that posture... It was just there were so many people I saw who looked like that. Um, and there was this kind of look of uh, demoralization and paranoia and disillusionment in a lot of people's eyes. And then, of course, the pavements have got um, arrows pointing outwards with two meters, despite the fact that the pavements are barely one and a half meters wide. And, uh, you know, so here I am walking along with what looks like a demoralized nudgeocracy, as I like to call it. Um, it was like entering another world. And I think during this last year and a bit, I have been kind of spared cities. So I don't see billboards and I don't see um, any urban stuff. I don't see any of this stuff. And I don't know what, what happens to people who live in cities, um, despite the fact that I'm a Londoner, you know, I've escaped. Um, so with my fresh pair of eyes, I'd seen how, how people look like they have changed within the last year and a half. And, and even here in the, in the town that I live in, Someone was walking past me, and as they were walking up towards me on the same pavement, they got the mask out of their pocket, quickly put it on their face as they were approaching me, and I just, I just couldn't help but be sarcastic to them. <laughs> um, like I'm looking and I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? And you know, well, I'm, I'm very, I think I'm very fortunate to be resistant to it. Um, it amazes me and scares the hell out of me that so many people are not. Well, I just, in the light of what you just said, I'll refer listeners to. A recent video that I did called, it's called, uh, Pavlov, Pavlov's Dogs and the Pandemic. I mention that because in it, I talk about conditioning and how the, the last year and a half of pandemic restrictions has really, as I mentioned earlier, ex- exacerbated trends that were already in place. And you mentioning this obesity thing in, in Exeter and I'm sure it's everywhere that's just where you happen to be at the time. And this, mm. this, this general fear, fearfulness. Well, I find that in terms of people's health, absolutely your body says something, uh, your physical health and your outward health says something about your state of mind. Because it's, it's common, you know, in, in health uh, discussions to say that your, your outward appearance says something about your physical internal health, you know. So if you've got bad skin, or whatever. Just as an example, maybe there's something going on inside your body that's causing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you've got you know some sort of inflammation or whatever it happens to be, that that says something about. If you know you've got bad teeth, that says something about your internal state. And I think this works. I know it works psychologically as well. So just as if you go to someone's home, the state of their home, how it is, how it's presented, how it's kept. Good, bad, or indifferent says something about their state of mind. I'm convinced of that. So I think that what we're seeing now is more than just 
a manifestation of what I said about, you know, binging on Netflix and takeaways and lager uh, mm-hmm. during lockdown. I think that we begin to see outward manifestations of people's inner psychological states and the stress and the trauma, the anxiety, the fear that we have all been subject to. Some of us respond differently to those sorts of pressures than others. But I think that, you know, the, the mind suffers, the body cries out, you know, the mind, the mind body connection is absolutely fundamental. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking around and thinking to myself as I was seeing all these people, because, I mean, all right, there is there is one thing where someone has put on weight because they're getting middle-aged spread, and I've got a moderate amount of that myself, which I've kept reasonably under control, but it doesn't affect my, my posture, it doesn't affect the way I hold myself, how I hold my shoulders as I'm walking down the road, none of that. Um, but, of course, there's this kind of misshapenness that you see with the people as they get this chronic obesity they, even if they don't look particularly large they, they develop this kind of misshapenness of body and um and that's something that you know i kind of think of as uh, semi-independent of being fat so to speak because i think there's plenty of people out there that i would say are fat but they're not misshapen of body in this kind of way you know and um this is one of the things i c- couldn't help noticing as i was watching the people walking past me on the pavement in exeter the other day is that like um Whatever the hell is going on, um, what we're being encouraged to do or not encouraged to do, whichever way you want to look at that, it's creating a, um, a world where people are going to become more susceptible to worse illnesses and worse maladies than what we're what, what we're uh, you know experiencing with COVID. Everything that's been done is counterproductive, and we've got I, I don't know either we've got a bunch of idiots who haven't got a clue what they're doing, or we've got a bunch of evil, malevolent, bad actors who do know what they're doing. But I don't understand how the powers that be can't see what they're doing at this point. No, well, you, you just you've you've more or less given your own version of my of my, <laughs> of my points, you know, which is like yeah. this is all of this is not leaving us in better shape to yeah. face future problems. You know, our mm. our bodies, including our immune systems, have evolved to be perfectly attuned to mm. life on this planet. Now I know that particularly since the scientific and industrial revolutions that we as a species have radically altered planetary mm. systems in ways that were that never really possible in the past uh, and that has introduced all you know new stresses and in, in a very sh- short space of time as well that has, have affected our, our our minds and bodies and we've had to tr- try and react to that as best we can and modern medicine has come in and it has had its uses mm. but at the same time we came through, you know, any species that of mammals that let's face it, we're pretty, we're ingenious. Uh, you know, we're, we're tool makers and we're problem solvers, but we're pretty weak compared to a lot of the other mammals that we coexist with, particularly in the past. Woolly mammoths and saber toothed tigers would have us in a heartbeat. It was only when we got together in big groups and made weapons that we could take them down. Yeah. But on the other hand, as a species, we still survived something like an ice age. Mm-hmm. So the idea that, you know, we have to be constantly mollycoddled and medicated, whether it's mentally or physically or both in order to make it into the future. I mean, that's just an, an indicator for me of how soft we've become. Uh, and that for me summed up physically in, in terms of an image in that misshapen 
body that you, you describe, you know, the, the, mm. the type of uh, human individual that a hundred thousand years ago would probably have been dead in 48 hours if, if, if left to fend for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is um, it's pretty bad because, I mean, another thing I'm looking at at the moment is that, as I say, I have a, I probably have a very unusual um, opinion on the uh, vaccine. But my, my approach to this, um, I mean, when it was explained to me, I've had it explained to me how it works. And, well, if it, if it works without side effects, say, and if it works without um, all the scary stuff that the, the really kind of fringy anti-vaxxers talk about, then I would say that it's uh, very uh, technologically impressive as far as medical science goes. We'll just have to see. Um, it could turn out that there will be bad long-term side effects there. But the other problem is that despite the fact that, yeah, we are living in a world where we've got rid of a lot of childhood illnesses and we, you know, we've, we're living in a world where we've got medical science which has prevented and stopped a lot of things, but it has allowed a lot of, um, a lot of people to survive who otherwise wouldn't have been able to survive. And maybe I got to count myself as one of those people who may not have been able to survive in a, in a much more primitive world than we're in at the moment. And all right, that's okay if, um, some of us are smart and some of us, um, you know, can inspire good problem solving or encourage people to think about deeper and more complex things. But it also means that a lot of people who um, otherwise wouldn't have survived, um, who cannot survive, are like farm animals. And um, and uh, I'm not saying that we should cull people. Though I don't know that it could be taken out of context. I don't mean it like that. But we have created this world where not only we created this great society which is technologically like the gods but we've also created a society where people who otherwise would be far far too weak to survive in this world um have got to live and it could be that um you know the anti-fragility that got us to evolve to where we are now itself is probably under threat and um, i know that people could look at me and take that out of context and think i'm suggesting something bad i'm not I'm not suggesting anything bad. I'm not even suggesting how we solve or even if we do solve it. But it's quite clear to me that, that you know, we create a lot of solutions, but we've also created equal amounts of problems as well. Oh, absolutely we have. And yeah. there's, there's lots of evidence in human yeah. history going back mm. thousands and thousands of years for every person that died because they were born with a, you know, what we'd now just call a disability, yeah. me mental or physical, they were just not really, you know, they were never really going to survive. And the people that they were born into, the peoples, the tribes, the, you know, that they just, they couldn't, they just couldn't make it physically. The conditions that they were living in wouldn't allow it. Mm. Uh, there's also the evidence for people like that being looked after, being cared mm. for, you know, vulnerable weak people but members of, of families and of tribes being cared for as much as was possible mm. so we've always done that and there's no suggestion that that shouldn't be done we if we are human beings with a heart then we respond to other human beings i think in a natural situation um not with with hostility and competitiveness as such but with empathy we recognize those who are like us and we want to, we want to help people who are in need you know as much as we we see suffering in animals you know uh, you know we see we want to do something with that you know it gets us you know if we see yeah. that then i think that that happens 
with other with our fellow humans as well. I just think it might be a bit fashionable at the minute in this sort of conflict, you know, riven atmosphere that we live in at the minute that we discussed earlier. For for that to be seen is not the case, you know. That I get weary of comments and memes mm. and opinion pieces where you know humans are a cancer on the earth and I hate people and you know so you know hell is other people, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I know where it's coming from, but I, I I say I grow weary of that very very quickly. I don't think mm. it reflects our natural our natural instincts. No, so it's a form of nihilism. It's kind of something that got into the meme sphere, and I think in the 1990s that people started talking like this. And when I like retrospectively think back to the people who were talking, you know, like this, the early conspiracists, the early nihilists, the um, the pre-social uh, media, pre-internet people who were, you know, spreading the conspiracy memes, as it were. I knew a few of them who were doing that. And then you see this being said again, oh, we're a cancer, we're a, we're a disease. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's not a very nice way to think. I mean, my, my attitude towards us as species is that, yeah, we may have become parasitic, but then, you know, we've, we've been given the gift of ingenuity. So with the gift of ingenuity, I'm sure that given enough time, we could work out how to become symbiotic again. You know, um, because we are very conscious of who we are and we're, we're, we're sentient. Um, so we could probably work out a way to evolve into being, um, you know, being, uh, more symbiotic and less parasitic over time. And, um, you know, it's maybe it's a race against time to do that. But, um, why, why not suggest that if we have cured diseases, then rather than see ourselves as a cancer, could we see ourselves as something that would cure that within us? that makes us be perceived as a cancer because that would be a better way of looking at the world from the perspective from the lens of a human and, and a human potential i i think uh, as, as we move into closing section i'm going to use that comment mm. as a bridge to my thoughts about uh, the last year and a half i'll mention the great reset and i'm thinking here in terms of what you were hinting at like great changes on the earth and the way we live how we relate to each other um, ourselves and, and the wider cosmos and the rest of life on Earth, all of that. I have speculated a great deal, as have many, many others. It's one of the, the hot topics in, in the alt media sphere at the minute. That behind the pandemic response, there are wheels in motion to make uh, substantial changes to the, uh, the systems that we live under. You know how we how human life on Earth is done. That from the economic sphere, you know, how money operates, the financial systems, environment, climate change, whatever you think of it, all of those, the issues around that, our energy future in a, uh, an era of declining fossil fuel availability, how are we going to uh, uh, keep the lights on in future, all of that taken together. And if people want to, if they're really not familiar with the Great Reset, Google that, particularly in the context of the World Economic Forum. So my take on it at the minute, the best guess I have up to this point, is that I, I don't know, but certainly based on public statements and documents and lots of uh, circumstantial evidence, is that there may be something to this, that whatever you think about the origins of the pandemic or whatever you think about the global response to it it may be serving as a um a, you know a conduit a way to get certain 
uh, very substantial changes made to global systems so that, you know, human life looks quite different at the other end of it. So, um, that's what I'm, that's what I'm watching closely. Mm. And, um, we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, it's a fluid situation, but I'd be very interested to get your take on that. All right. Well, as far as I can see, um, at the moment, there is one thing, um, that has gone up in value more than everything by, um, orders of magnitude, which are ridiculous over the last 10 years. And that is Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, a completely, um, completely decentralized system, which does not have any human beings operating it, except that they just operate the infrastructure of it. Right. Um, not only that, but in the last week when I found out that El Salvador, um, is actually thinking because El Salvador ended up being dollarized. They've got no currency of their own and they're now planning on them um, using the geothermal vents from their volcanoes to power up, um, uh, Bitcoin miners. At the same time, of course, that China is kicking out all the Bitcoin miners, um, which are all using coal. Um, what's happening now is I'm seeing, I mean, I'm, I'm only using, uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as a, uh, incidental, um, to the, to what I see really more than actually talking about Bitcoin itself. But what I see here is is that the Greta Thunbergs and uh, you know the the what you call the green communists, the watermelons of this world, who are desperately trying to bring about green austerity, and Klaus Schwab and people like him who seem to want to bring around centralized top down systems, right? And will now find themselves competing with a free market um, where geothermal energy is likely to be powering a decentralized thing which will be um, enriching third world countries and put in the, um, how can I say, uh, then the, do- the dollar itself and the and Davos itself um, has, a, has a, what you call it, a, a stiff competition. Um, on one hand, you'll have top-down technocrats um, trying to impose a totalitarian centralized system. On the other hand, you'll have the free market and um, blockchain technology and cryptography. And um, it's just a question of which one of them will win. They look at the moment like they have um, an even chance of doing um, so, except the difference is that when you look at um, what has always won in the past, um, uh, totalitarian systems always produce mediocre, demoralized people who do not act out of their own individual need to do so. Whereas um, free market capitalist systems, not, not crony capitalist systems, Free market systems where um, decentralization and individualism is allowed. These places have always flourished and always done better than everything in the past. And, um, you know, I, I look at, um, as a result of looking back at Klaus Schwab and Davos and all of that, with that kind of way of looking at the world, it looks like that it's not guaranteed that they're going to get what they tell us they're going to bring. It looks like they have stiff competition. Um, I think that, yeah, central bank digital currencies could be a real horrible form of enslavement and surveillance capitalism, especially if we ended up going too far down the China route. Um, we'd have to, you know, really think about that before, before we end up being in a cold war where it's two totalitarian commie systems with total surveillance fighting each other. Or whether or not this means that the people who can successfully escape from this world and set up a decentralized, um, you know, uh, infrastructure outside of that could build a new world. And if they do, that all the entrepreneurs and all the business people and all the innovators will probably go there. And that third place outside the two totalitarian technocracies will probably end up becoming richer than them. That's what I kind of see. I, I see a, a very much more complex, nuanced macro world. So as a result, 
I don't think that anyone, any single group of people, top down or otherwise, are strong enough to guarantee the future that they are threatening us with, if that makes sense and if I weren't too long-winded about it. No, I agree. I think a lot of would-be globalist mm. world or world government-type organizations try yeah. to present their uh, prescriptions for prosperity as a, a fait accompli, mm. uh, as, a, as inevitable. You know, yeah. cer- certainly when you read uh, the Great Reset book by Klaus Schwab, and his, his co-author is presented very much like that, that there, this is inevitable. It's, it's happening. Uh, you know, the pandemic has ensured that it will happen, but I think you're right. It's, it, again, it's not a black and white situation. It's, there's much more movement in there. And mm-hmm. I think that only a completely locked down, controlled, surveilled global system can stop the little bubbles of of alternative ideas popping up elsewhere. I think mm. the overall that the whole scheme, this whole scheme, could be likened to you know trying to hold a a balloon underwater. You know, yeah. you can never relent in your efforts for one second. As soon as you even begin to loosen your grip on that balloon, it'll pop to the surface, and you, you know you've lost. There again, you're you're back where you started trying to suppress it. Mm. So, and I personally think. I've just written an article alluding to this, actually, that the Achilles heel of the grand, you know, utopian globalist schemes is actually energy because mm. all of it relies on integrated technology, and which, as you've said earlier, you know, is very impressive what's been achieved, you know, technologically. Yeah. Um, we live in this 24-7 media matrix and the technologies of control and surveillance are growing and getting more complex and comprehensive. Yeah. But... All of this requires not only huge effort, a lot, you know, intellectual uh, and you know, emotional effort along the, an ideological commitment along the lines I've described, but physically it's costly, mm. and it's so much less costly to have that more diverse, individualistic, free-flowing world where it's different ideas and different ideologies and different ways of doing things and looking at things are allowed to flourish. Alternatives are allowed to come up. One thing proves itself successful. It's adopted. Something else is allowed to fail. It goes away rather mm. than this one size fits all. Totalitarianism requires incredible effort, nonstop effort. Yeah, it's true. A nonstop effort all the time and it's exhausting, you know? Well, I'll tell you one one um, little joke I've come up with. Do you remember a little while ago when, uh, before 2008, co-op, um, because they were saying that they were more ethical than other banks, they used to say good with money, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they ended up getting bailed out, and they ended up becoming a zombie bank just like everyone else. So I thought, right, they should just come up with a new slogan, co-op, good with bad money. You know? <laughs> and I thought, you know, because that's exactly what they become, a kleptocratic zombie organization. And... um you know, I, I look around and I see there are, there is a solution. It looks like a solution is being built. It also looks like that the very self-same solution, that very self-same decentralized solution, will probably cause um, the green revolution and probably um, outperform the green revolution that the the people who are supposed to be um, you know uh, bringing that about will do. And it will do it will bring prosperity, not austerity, in the process of doing so. Because every time, you know, even if you think about it, every time you, you get a geothermal vent and you use it to power up um, a crypto mining rig, it pays for itself. And then one volcano 
pays for one warehouse, if you like, and a whole load of um, um, you know supercomputers. Um, they then, as a result, pay for the next geothermal energy. Then anywhere and everywhere in the world where you've got volcanoes, you end up with a new form of electricity, which is as carbon neutral as nuclear, but less dangerous. Um, completely, you know, getting rid of the need for coal and fossil fuels and everything, or at least minimising them. Um, and then, well, the if you like America, Europe, NATO, the IMF, the World Bank, all of these people, they won't really be able to get away with dropping bombs on geothermal plants because Greta Thunberg would not be amused at that. So I kind of see that um, there's lots of own goals that the powers that be could end up scoring as a result of this. So they have to be very careful they don't cause their own PR catastrophes. And I look at, uh, into the future and I think, yeah, no, that, that, that horrible dystopia that you know dr evil and all that lot are promising us it doesn't look as guaranteed and i think that's one of the reasons why i don't like to spread what i call it fear uncertainty and doubt and despair online because there's too many people doing it they make you feel like that world is already here and that's my concern the scared people they they just make you feel like that world is already here it's not and there's no there's nowhere near a hundred percent chance guarantee that it will come about at all no, I wholeheartedly agree. We have to be careful not to uh, talk ourselves into these things. Mm. I, I find myself having conversations on an almost daily basis yeah. with all sorts of people I meet who are talking about, oh, you know, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, we must, we're going to have to do this, we're going to have to do that. And I'm, I'm saying, no, hang on, you know, don't <laughs> just, you know, don't wish it. You know, don't, mm. don't pray for that which you don't want by sort of repeating it mantra like, you know, cause you're, as you said earlier, we're being gaslit on a massive scale and, and we just have to bear that in mind all the time and, and have that critical filter, you know, yeah. in, in operation with, with all the, the information that never more than there has, there is now that's coming to us all the time. Well, I'll tell you before, um, I'll say, uh, before I, before I shoot off, I wanted to give you a thought, actually. Um, I wanted to give you a perspective that you might find very interesting here. And this is um, a conversation I remember having in 1986, right, when I was about 15 or something like that. I was in London and I got stopped by someone. They, I mean, they happened to be working for Marxism Weekly at the time. I won't hold that against them. But he stopped me in the street and, um, you know, in Charing Cross Road in London. And, and he said to me, you know, he said, you know, about this AIDS problem. He says, well, we're not going to have a, we're not going to have an AIDS epidemic in 20 or 30 years time. And I thought, well, that's a bit of an unusual and somewhat heretical, unorthodox thing to say that would uh, get lots of people's backs up. But he turned out to be right. And, um, you know, he was explaining it to me that, um, no, come 2000, we're not all going to, all going to die of AIDS. Right. Um, and you remember the, the, the ways we were all going to die. If it weren't going to be AIDS that were going to kill us, it was going to be, you know, some threatening red button that was going to kill us in three minutes time. And, and, um, you know, you look at this present age now and there's a very good chance that we survive all this. We come out the other end of it and then we look back and laugh in 30 years time at how ridiculous and daft all our fears were. And I'm kind of hardwired to think like that. Well, we're the same age and yes, I remember. Uh, the AIDS thing, you know, don't die of ignorance. But yeah, the TV adverts were were absolutely terrifying. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't terrified by them, but looking yeah. objectively at it, it was like, yeah, this is you know, wow, this is being not just pitched to those in the relatively small minority of at risk groups, but being picked at, pitched at the general public, you know, yeah. uh, just family people and just everybody of every sexual persuasion. You know, you're all going to die of AIDS. Mm. And, uh, you know, <laughs> okay. So before we sign off for today, Niall, 
we mentioned uh, your Through an Opaque Lens channel that you have on YouTube, but I, I also mentioned that you're on other platforms. So give out whatever information you'd like to uh, for people who want to check all of that out. Um, yeah, right. I would say that... Well, let me see. I'm going to get my show notes blurb up here just so I know. Um, <coughs> I hardly ever use um, a lot of those channels, unfortunately, so I'm not really that much into social media. But um, what I would say is that, like, um, if uh, my YouTube channel... Well, I could basically tell people what my YouTube channel is. That would probably be the easiest way. Um, the Facebook group, basically, is facebook.com slash groups slash opaque lens, all one word, all lowercase. Um, and my YouTube channel is um, youtube.com slash small letter c slash mr opaque lens all one word um, I don't know if it's case sensitive uh, but that's uh, yeah so there's a Facebook group people could join or they could go directly to my channel and if they um, if they can't work it out the best thing to do is just go into the search bar of YouTube choose channels in the filter and type mr opaque lens in there and they'll find me Splendid. Well, once again, Niall, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Yeah, cheers, and Greg, and um, yeah, good luck. Uh, good luck with your show as well.